given the privilege to welcome Steve Lennox back to our stage. He served at Iowa for 22 years in a variety of roles, including Dean of the Chapel as well as a professor and many others. Currently, he serves as the 12th president of Kingswood University, but those are all just titles. If you really want to know Steve Lennox, you just had to sit in his class. And he genuinely demonstrated a love for the students that is unbelievable. And I was overwhelmed by how much he invested in me in just the one semester I had him. So I'd like to welcome my Uncle Steve to the stage. It is great to be back with you. 22 years here. I'm 57, 58 now. And when you get to that age, you start to think, well, how are you going to finish out? And to be perfectly honest, I was quite content to hang out here for another 10 or 15 years until retirement. My wife had a great job here in the area. Family grew up here. We had incredible friends. But God played a dirty trick on me. He got me to write a book on Abraham. At the same time, he stirred in my heart a desire for something uh, more. And as I wrote about Abraham agreeing to follow God's call, wherever that call might be, at an age far older than 57, I realized that for me as a Christian, I only had one choice. And it was not a choice for what would be the easiest path to retirement. It was the question of what does God want me to do? And already a yes to that question. Sign in on the bottom of the check before the amount was filled in. You never get too old. You're never at the wrong place to make that kind of decision. That's not what I came to talk to you about. But I felt like I needed to tell you that. That is always the question that God is asking, and yes is always the answer. So I don't know who I'm talking to, but I'm talking to somebody. Yes is always the answer to God, whatever the question. I just want to say again, thanks, John and Jennifer, for having me back to continue something that I started a few years ago, which is a sermon series on the Apostles' Creed. Now, for some of us, the Apostles' Creed is a little strange. It's not something we recited regularly in our in our churches, but it is an essential codification of the teachings of Scripture. It's not in, in place of Scripture. It was given to us very early on in the history of the church. The Apostles' Creed dates well back to within just a few decades of the very beginning of the church. And it essentially puts in codified form what the teachings of Scripture are. It, it reminds me kind of like a the spectrum of light. I'll tell you, the only thing I remember from high school, Roy G. Biv. That's it. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. And that's the spectrum. Now, we didn't invent that. We recognized that that was the truth of reality. We didn't invent the colors of the spectrum. We recognized the colors of the spectrum. How about the periodic table of the elements? Don't worry, I'm not even going to try with this one. But what is that? It's not an alphabetized list of the elements that make up the material universe. It is a codification of reality as we find it. And that's what the Apostles' Creed is. 
It goes with the teachings of Scripture and presents in a clear, brief, condensed form and tells us what are the things that Scripture, scripture absolutely teaches. It's not specific to a particular denomination or theological perspective. It's what Christians have everywhere and always believed. So the sooner that we can wrap our minds around what the Apostles' Creed says, the easier time we'll have in understanding Scripture. That's why I felt it was so important for us to spend some time looking at that. And so we did, phrase by phrase. I'm going to ask them to bring up the Apostles' Creed. We're actually going to come back to this and recite it at the end. But we talked about what it meant to believe in God, the Father Almighty. And I mentioned to you, for the few of you that were here when we started this, that it was very significant that the early church picked these two attributes of God to single out, Father Almighty. And we recognized how unusual these two things are to combine. Because Father speaks of love and, and the relationship, and Almighty speaks of this absolute grandeur. And the only way to properly understand God is to keep our arms around both ends of, those, of that polarity. To recognize that God is at the same time that one who loves us most, and at the same time that one for whom nothing is impossible. And our tendency is to slip off that polarity to one end or the other. And the Creed reminds us that God is both Father and Almighty. And we talked about God being the maker of heaven and earth. And one of the things that I tried to point out when we talked about that is just the brevity and simplicity of what we are called upon to believe as Christians. That he made it. And if you want to draw the line on the one side of which we as Christians need to be and not on the other, there it is. So many of us spend so much of our time wrangling over the questions of how God made the heavens and the earth. But the key delineation between a true understanding of Scripture and a false understanding of Scripture does not lie in those intra-family debates, as important as they are. It lies in this fundamental distinction between the acknowledgement that everything that is, is because God made it, and those who argue the contrary. That is what we dis that distinguishes us as Christians. We talked about the ways that the early church described Jesus. Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. I don't have time to unpack all of that again, but essentially they captured in those four titles for Jesus the essence of what we need to understand about him. Particularly that it doesn't matter what we believe to be true of him, it must come down to whether we make him Lord, our Lord. And we talked about the rest of the phrases having to do with Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension. And that finishes essentially the second part of the Apostles' Creed. We're going to come to the third paragraph of the Creed. It's on the next slide. Sorry, next slide. There it is. I believe in the Holy Spirit. That's what I've come to talk to you about today. So if you have your Bibles or Bibles on your devices, turn to Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. And this will be our opportunity to introduce what it is that Scripture teaches us about the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. 
Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language, Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Let's pray. Father, open our minds and our hearts because you want to teach us today. I pray that your spirit would be present in this room to teach us, to open our eyes to what it is that you want to say to us. And may each of us, as we leave this place in just a few minutes, do so with a deeper understanding of and commitment to the work of the Holy Spirit in the world and in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I came to a, a kind of unusual question one day as I'm looking at this passage. We know that the Holy Spirit most fully manifested himself on the day of Pentecost. My question is, why then? Because while many of us only know Pentecost or Pentecostal as a Christian term, it's actually a Jewish term. It refers to a Jewish holiday well before it referred to a Christian holiday. And so of all the 365 days that God could have chosen to send his Holy Spirit in this most pronounced way, why Pentecost? Now I suppose we could say it, it's merely coincidental. He just closed his eyes and pointed his finger at the calendar, and it happened to fall on Pentecost. But the more you know about God, the more you realize that's not the way he generally works. If he chooses a day, there's probably a reason for it. So working with that assumption, I ask myself, why Pentecost? What was it about Pentecost that had something to say to us about the work of the Holy Spirit? Let me change the question. Maybe make it easier for you to get what if the Holy Spirit hadn't come back then, but he came to the United States on the 4th of July? Immediately we'd say, well, there must be something about liberty and freedom that had to do with the Holy Spirit, right? Let's say that it wasn't on the 4th of July, but he came on Labor Day. And we'd say, well, it must be that the Holy Spirit has something to do with our getting the work accomplished. Or what if he came on St. Patrick's Day? And we'd say, well, then God must be on the side of the Irish. Which is what some of you Notre Dame's fans have believed all along. I'd simply point out that he didn't come on St. Patrick's Day and leave it at that. Came on Pentecost. 
Now, there were lots of Jewish holidays he could have picked. He could have come on Passover as a way of reinforcing the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing his people out of captivity. Or he, he could have come on Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, as a way of reminding his people that this is a brand new start. Or he, but he chose Pentecost. Something about that day has something to do with the Holy Spirit. So let's unpack it. I think there are several things that God wants to teach us, has wanted to teach his church about the work of the Holy Spirit by choosing that day to send him. Here's one thing. Look at verse 5. When the Spirit came, he had a big crowd. Three times a year, all the Jewish males, traditionally speaking, all the Jewish males were to gather into Jerusalem. Now, when Jews started to proliferate around the world, they couldn't all come three times a year, but it was a pilgrimage destination, at least once in a person's life, to come to Jerusalem on one of these three days, Pentecost being one of them. So there's a huge crowd. Now, I know it's a bit simplistic, but I'm just going to suggest that one of the reasons why God sent the Spirit on Pentecost is because he had a message that he wanted to get out to a big number of people. I know that's simplistic. And it really isn't the first time we get this message. Ever since God has begun to work with his people in the person of Abraham, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, what I think to be the hinge of Scripture, God has demonstrated his desire that by calling the Jews, his intention was to reach all nations with the gospel. Some of Jesus' last words to, to his disciples were to go out to all the world. Among his very last words to his disciples was that the gospel would go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. As one writer says in scripture, God doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance. So no surprise here, but it does need to be pointed out that God sent his spirit on Pentecost because God has a heart for the world. But I do think I need to qualify that, especially in politics season. Because there's a lot of people out there right now who would love to have your vote. And they have rallies and they have people come to these rallies and they tell people what they want to hear because they have a heart for the world. But really, we have this sense that all they want is our vote. I wouldn't want to leave you with the idea that God just wants your vote. Because the coming of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost doesn't just say that God has a heart for the world. What it really says is God has a heart for the world's heart. Let me explain what I mean. Several years ago, there was a young lady here, a student by the name of Sarah. Sarah grew up on the mission field. Her parents were missionaries from when she was a little girl in Spain, in a region of Spain populated by people who spoke the Basque language. So Sarah grew up hearing the scriptures in English, but really hearing the scriptures and the story of the gospel in the Basque language. And what she told us one time in a chapel was that the Basque language for that reason was her heart language. 
And it was one thing to hear the scriptures in English, but for Sarah, it was another thing to hear the scriptures in her heart language. It had something to do with the fact that God knew her heart language. I go back to the text. One of the distinguishing features of this day of Pentecost was that the message of the gospel went out in this variety of languages. And you say, well, it had to. That's where these people were from. No, every single one of the people in Jerusalem spoke Greek. And if God's only intention was to communicate the gospel so that everybody would hear it and understand it, Greek would have done. The whole miracle of dividing up the message heart language by heart language was to communicate not merely the message of the gospel but was to communicate the fact that God knew their heart language. This was not the importation of some foreign teaching which they would that have to translate from the language that they spoke to the language of their heart. This was the fact that God already knew their heart language. And the gospel was for their heart language, not just their head language. You tracking with me? Because this has significant ramifications for us. Sometimes we feel like God has a head language, but he doesn't know our heart language. And if we're honest, there are times when we feel like if we sign on the bottom of that check and give God whatever he asks for, it will do something to us that will be foreign to who we are. He will take us to places that we never want to go and don't think we should have to go and we'll hate once we get there. When in fact, God knows your heart language. He knows what it is you are most longing for, what you feel like you were made for, and your best opportunity to get to the destination that you feel like you were made for is to sign on the bottom line. Because that's what God wants for you the best. He knows your heart language. This is significant for a second reason. I had a guy in my office the other day. His name is John, and John has a heart for the people who would never darken the door of a church. And as John and I talked, I could sense his passion for these people for whom Christianity was less than irrelevant. And what we were able to share together was the fact that God has a heart for those people too. The gospel does not have barriers so that you have to become a certain kind of mold. I think we can somehow communicate that message. It's not our intention here at schools like this, but we can somehow communicate the message that if you're going to be a Christian, you're going to look and act like this. And you know inside that that's not who you are. And so there's this this feeling like, I don't want to become a Christian because I don't want to become like that cookie cutter. I don't want to have to worship like that. I don't want to have to talk like that. I don't want to have to act like that. I don't want to have to relate to people in that way. But if God has a heart for the world's heart, then it's a, a heart for all the people of the world. Not just people who look and act like Christians. The core of being a Christian is a love for God that's willing to do anything for him and a love for others that's willing to do anything for them. And then there are a million flavors. God has a heart for the world's heart. And it's the Holy Spirit who communicates that truth.
to us. There's There's a second reason, I think. And that has to do with the purpose, the original purpose for the day of Pentecost. This was intended to be a day when the Jews would bring the first fruits of their harvest to the temple. Back in Leviticus, it talks about this. Count off 50 days from Passover. That's where Pentecost comes from. Count off 50 days from the Passover Sabbath and bring the first fruits of your grain harvest. That is the first gleanings from the field. And you're going to bring them to the temple and you're going to present them to the temple as a way of saying to God, thanks for everything. It's all yours, but this is all you require of me. So I want to make sure that I express my gratitude to you because you have given us the harvest. Now, what I'm suggesting to you that God chose this festival of Pentecost, this festival associated with the harvest, because God intended to bring a supernatural harvest of people into the church. That's what he does. First first day of the church, there are 3,000 people added. And as you move through the book of Acts, you find more and more people added. Now, I want you to notice the verb that's used. It's added. In one place, specifically in this chapter, it talks about the Lord adding. It isn't just that these early Christians were aggressive evangelists. It's that something supernatural was going on. By 35 AD, now most scholars would estimate that sometime a few years earlier, Jesus died, rose from the dead, and ascended to heaven. Within just a few years... The message of this convicted criminal put to death by the Roman government in disgrace and shame, the message of this convicted Jewish carpenter from some backwater in Judea, his message has now spread through Judea and Samaria. A few years later, it's made its way up the Mediterranean coast and on down into Egypt. A few years after that, it has begun to spread throughout what we now know as Turkey. A few years after that, it's finished up with Turkey. It's moved on over into Greece and down along North Africa. And by 150 years after the death of this convicted Roman criminal, convicted in a Roman court and hung naked on a cross at the crossroads in Jerusalem, this message has now reached the entire Mediterranean world as far as Gaul, England. Now, I don't want to take anything away from the men and women who were involved in spreading this gospel. Many of them paid for it with their lives. Every single one of the 12 apostles was either martyred or they tried to martyr him. It was only John who survived. I don't want to take anything away from the human effort that went in, the sacrifice that went in, but I'm here to tell you, that God has a plan to reach the world. And it's a plan by which he intends to reach the world. And that's why there today are estimated 2.2 billion Christians in the world. That, that's not human effort. No human program can do that. God is up to something in the world. A hundred years ago, less than 10% of Africa was Christian. Today it's 25%. They estimate by 2030 it'll be 40%. Similar growth rates in Asia and South America. God is at work. God is reaching Muslims through dreams and visions. And I don't think it's just Muslims. I think every single one of us would have to admit that we came to faith in Christ probably because someone told us or influenced us 
But I can tell you that it was the work of the Holy Spirit that supernaturally brought to your mind that sense of conviction and supernaturally offered to you that plan of salvation. That's the Spirit's job. Now here's why I think that's important. Because you and I can look at the world in which we're living, this post-Christian society, and I think in Canada we're about 10 or 20 years ahead in terms of a post-Christian society. And it's discouraging. Is God really at work? Has he dropped the ball? Is he paying attention? Because things aren't going well. So easy to slip into a, a kind of a hopelessness about the way the world is going. This, this feeling like, oh my goodness, are we on the wrong end of this? And for that reason, it's so easy for us to back away from any firm commitment to the faith. We get into those conversations with our non-Christian friends and we just lose our nerve because we're not sure. And if that's you this morning, and I suspect it is true for many of us, this sense of hopelessness and failure of nerve, I got news for you. The Spirit is alive and well and working. Balance of power has shifted. It used to be 80% of the world's Christians, 100 years ago, 80% of the world's Christians lived in Europe and North America. That number now is down to 40%. But that means 60% of the world's Christians are in the global south and east. God is at work. And God's spirit is moving because the influence of the global south, the Christian global south, is moving back in this direction and having a positive influence on us. This is why I don't understand why Christians are so opposed to immigration. Immigration, by and large, is the influx of many of these Christians from the global south, and they're infiltrating our churches and rejuvenating them. So think, think twice before you oppose immigration. But, but really what I'm wanting to say to you is that God is on the move. And that means that you and I can have the hope and the confidence that God's Spirit is still at work, not just in the Southern Hemisphere, but in the lives of your family members who seem to be totally disinterested in the faith, in the lives of those parents or siblings or friends from high school who don't seem to think about Christianity at all, don't think for a minute that God has stopped the movement of His Spirit. God wants to bring in those people, and He will probably utilize you and me to help Him do that. That's just the way He works. And I think one reason why God chose to send the Spirit on the day of Pentecost was to remind us that His intention is to bring in a harvest of men and women, boys and girls, and He hasn't changed His plan on that i got time to talk about one more. One more reason why I think God chose to send the Spirit on Pentecost. The day of Pentecost, as I mentioned, this is a little tougher, so, so stay with me, okay? The day of Pentecost originally was an agricultural festival, but somewhere along the way within Judaism, perhaps in the century or two between the Testaments, the Jews began to associate the giving of the law with the day of Pentecost. So the Jews who showed up on Pentecost in Jerusalem were thinking two things. They were thinking about agricultural blessings that God had given and the blessing of the law that God had given. 
Interestingly, if you read some of the Jewish writings from between the Testaments, people like the rabbis and Philo, what you notice is that they not only associated the giving of the law with Pentecost, but when they described the giving of the law, it was in very interesting ways. They talked about the law coming with a rushing wind. They talked about the law coming in the language of the people. They talked about the law coming with fire, fire that separated out among those present at Mount Sinai. Ring a bell? Not only does God send the Spirit on a day when the Jews gathered there in Jerusalem are thinking of the law, He actually sends the Spirit accompanied by phenomena that they associated with the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. You tracking with me? So what's the next question? Why? What is there that connects the law with the Spirit? And the answer is pretty simple, I think. Both of them are revelations of God. In fact, for the Jews, the law was the greatest revelation of God that he could have possibly given. I mean, it, it told them everything they needed to know about God's will. And it told them a lot about God's character. It told them what he wanted them to do. It told them what he didn't want them to do. The one thing the law couldn't do was to give them power to obey. God's intention was never that the law be a permanent fixture among the Jews. In fact, he told them through the prophet Jeremiah 31, check it out, he told them that his intention was to take the law that was written on tablets of stone and write it somewhere else. Anybody tell me where? On the heart. And he said in that same passage in Jeremiah 31, 31 and following, that you'll no longer need someone else to teach you the law, namely the priest, that was their job, but you will know it from within. You'll have an inner testimony of what the law is saying. So all along, God's intention was that the law would move from being an external object against which people would measure their lives to be internalized and personalized so that each person would have the power to do what God intended for them to do. You might think of it this way. In the law, God revealed his will. In Christ, God revealed his person. And in the spirit, God made the presence of Christ personal and individual to each of us. So that we could carry out what the law essentially commands. On the day of Pentecost, God sent the spirit as the clearest revelation of himself that we will ever get this side of heaven. Here's why I think that's important. Because there are some of us who feel like the attitudes that we have, the sins that we have, the habits that we have, we're kind of just, well, we're kind of just stuck with them. And the best that we can do is, is, is to ask forgiveness when we're made aware of them and just try harder. But the Holy Spirit came so that you and I could find the power to say no to the sins in our lives and yes to God. We do not have to live with the sinful nature controlling our lives. God gave us the Holy Spirit so that the presence of God could be personalized 
and individualized to each of us so that we can say yes to God, so that we can have the courage to sign on the dotted line whatever God asks of us. Do you really think that God's intention for us as Christians is to hobble along with a spirituality that's actually lower than that of the Old Testament. At least in the Old Testament, they could say, the righteous ones, I've done what the law requires. And yet there are many Christians, some of them in this room, who can't even say that. And I came here to tell you that the Spirit came on Pentecost as God's way of reminding us that the Spirit of God wants to become personal to us, wants to give us a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I, I came to Christ when I was like four. I grew up in the church. I had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ for decades until one day I became honest with myself. I was a faculty member here and I realized that I had the most impersonal personal relationship with Jesus Christ you could imagine. I loved him. I wanted to serve him. I knew his word. I read his word every day. I read his word, sat there, read his word. But I read it as someone who believed that God had somehow sent this message from a distance and that he was looking on from somewhere up there, up in the catwalks, to see if I was obeying. But it was a relationship that was very much me trying to do what God wanted me to do and without any sense that this was intending to be in the fullest sense of the term a personal relationship. That he wanted to talk to me personally in prayer. That he wanted to speak to me personally through his word. That he wanted me to walk through my day and teach my classes and preach in chapel and visit with students and advise students knowing that God was personally present with me by the Holy Spirit right in my office over in Noggle. I just can't help but believe that there's somebody else in this room with what they would honestly describe as an impersonal personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And my message for you is this, the Spirit came to make it personal, to be personally present, to communicate with you, to express love to you, to be present with you at your most difficult times. Don't settle for anything less. We're going to close this chapel by reciting the Apostles' Creed. And, and then when we get to that line of I believe in the Holy Spirit, I don't want it to just be I believe that there is a Holy Spirit. I would like for this to be your way of saying I believe the Holy Spirit has a heart for the world's heart. And I have a job to play in communicating that message so he brings in his harvest. I'm faithful in that task. But especially I want you to say I believe in the Holy Spirit wanting to give me a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Will you stand with me? Let's recite this together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. 
from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Father, I pray that you would take these men and women out of this building, onto this campus, fully cognizant of what you have made available to them through your spirit. Don't let them settle for anything less. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have a great day.